one of those weeks, but welcome to Live at 45. Um, this month's is Millie Archibald, and her talk is entitled Don't Run Commando. And I think if you take one piece of advice out of it, that is it. Do not run Commando. It's just not a good idea. Um, so without any further rambling on from me, I'm going to just shut up and let Millie go because Millie's was a nice long session, lots of questions and answers, a um, couple of technical difficulties at the beginning, but we overcome that quite well, I think, and um, I'll leave you to it. So enjoy, it's Millie Archibald and don't run commando.
and stress, I guess. Um, I was a massive insomniac at that time, and I have no, no idea why that happened. And looking back now, and this was something I really struggled to talk about at the time, and I, I'm surprised at myself that I'm standing here talking to you about it, um, because it was something that I completely covered up and thought it was a sort of weakness, I guess, in some respects. But it was a hard time, you know, Archie worked away from home, three young children, um, so I decided to start ultra running because I thought it might balance me out a bit more in all the madness. Um, so started in 2013, my little training partner, you asked who my training partner was, my little training partner for most of it has been Chloe, right from the day she was born up, up to the point now. Um, I'm not a particularly good runner, but I'm a bloody-minded one, and I think that's probably what gets me further each time. Um, I certainly joke quite a lot. I think I just got one speed, so I'm not particularly fast at half or marathon distance, but I can go and I can just keep going, and I think that's the one thing that I that um, is the positive uh, bit of my running is I can definitely cover the distance, um, and I realised that quite soon on um, in regards to what I was trying to do. Um, so this is my little running partner, Chloe, and she honestly, she just, and it sounds crazy, and, and you know what, people can judge me for this, and, but it's what I needed to do at this time in my life. So we trundled off in this superb running pram, and uh, she must have probably been about three or four months when I started. The others all, I ran with the others in the pram as well, but I think Chloe just went to a slightly to the different extreme. But um, she would come running with me, um, and we'd probably done hundreds and hundreds of miles in this running pram. Um, the bottom, I put the bottom right hand one in because that was quite a funny day when I think Archie was away and we decided to go to Woodham um, to do a race and Chloe was in the running pram. God knows what the woman behind thinks of me. She, I think she's looking at me thinking, what on earth are you doing? <laughs> but um, Chloe and I actually won our 10k race and little Anna entered the 5k and she won that one as well. And I've got such a fond memory of that day because it was, I was training for my first ultra um, and they all came with me and it was just brilliant. Um, so, my first ultramarathon, and I will get to the MDS, I was just going to put you a bit of background information first, but my first ultramarathon was, I think it was 2015, um, and it was the Hawker Highland Fling, which is up the West Highlands Way, um, I think it's about 57 miles at that one, um, I can't remember how long it took me, maybe 14, 13 hours. Um, and I ran this marathon in aid of orphans, Ebola children. I think I raised about £5,000. And I, I, each marathon I've done, I've raised money. I, I don't know whether it's the, the guilt to me for sort of justifying doing it in some respects, spending the time training. But um, I guess if I can help, you know, if I'm self-indulging myself in all of this running, if I can help in some way by, by raising money for charity, then I guess in some respects that makes me feel slightly better about it all. <laughs> but the Hocker Highland Fling produced my PST and like this is they're called my personal support team and here they are unbelievable um so basically these little guys come everywhere with me um and they support me through my training and through my uh runs that i do my races um and uh we've named them um the, our personal support team so um the one of me running on the beach is jurish bay and you can see chloe in the background and it, you probably can't see on this photo, but I've got a stick in my hand. And it was, I think it was a, a marathon, and we had to do three laps. And every time I came round, she gave me a stick, and I had to carry it, because I knew if I dropped it and I'd come round the second time, she'd go absolutely mental. <laughs> so the second time I came round, she gave me another stick. So I was running this marathon with, like, driftwood. <laughs> <laughs> and thinking, what on earth are you doing? Um, so, yeah, it was quite funny, bless her. So she's been up from, she's been, been uh, Chloe especially, has been absolutely brilliant. Um, so, checkpoint two. So what happened is a dear friend of mine, Claire and I, were, were, we entered ourselves for the marathons ourselves, going the distance and then going a little bit further. And I think in some respects, I've always obviously known about the MDS, but actually entering it and then thinking about having to do it was a very daunting um, very daunting thought indeed. I'm just going to say now, and I don't, I'm not saying this to belittle what I've done at all, but taking on the, it's called the toughest foot race on earth, I can tell you now it's not the toughest foot race on earth. The toughest foot race on earth is looking after three children, there's no <laughs> doubt about it. And I'm sure there's other distances out there that will absolutely challenge the MDS, there's no, no ways about that. So preparation, I think I probably did about nine months of serious running for the MDS. Um, We'll get, I'll talk about the mileage, what I had to do when I got out there to the desert. It's um, six days, and I think it's about 157 miles in total. 
So your mileage starts to build up over over the months, peaking at about sort of I think it was about February March I peaked and then um, brought my mileage back down again. And they say that you should be covering about 100 miles a week for two or three weeks. I, I never got up to that. I think my body, I knew what my body would be able to withstand. And I think by the time I'd reached 80 miles a week, I was feeling pretty shattered by it. I think I did that twice. But this is just a screenshot of my um, of my watch. I think I took it uh, in June this year. So that I think that's nine months. So nine months I covered over a thousand miles. And I can say now that little Chloe probably did about 400 of those. But she's absolutely amazing. She absolutely loves it, bless her. Um, so this was part of my training. I just put some photos up to prompt me about sort of telling me about my training. Mm. It, but the training was more, the training was the, the bigger part than the MDS. There's no, no doubt about that. Um, and actually a lot of my training, unfortunately, you know, it's, it's, it's the wrong way around for someone from the UK going out to the desert because a lot of it was done during the time we had the beast from the east. So I did so many long runs with snow up to my ankles or up to my knees rather. Um, and, and it was it was a pretty tough, um, it, you know, in regards to the, the winter and the weather and things like that. I didn't really have a massive strategy, I must admit. And I think when you've got children, you just grab the time when you can. So I did a lot of um, early morning head torch runs. And the, girl, the girls will laugh, Jane will laugh at this. She's heard it many times before. But I always think I'm quite gnarly and I tell people, I went out with my head torch today and I did 10 miles on the moon. And, and then they ask me a bit more and I'm like, oh yeah, I had to turn it off a couple of times because I heard their hedge rustle and I thought, God, there's someone behind me. And I've been known to jump into the ditch when there's been cars coming as well because I'm obsessed with people at five o'clock in the morning around chickens and hobbling off into murder me, which is completely <laughs> ridiculous. But actually, I'm not that brave when I go out on my head torch. It, it takes a lot to get out of bed and do that. But there was a lot of early morning head torch runs just to get that mileage up. But I did feel on top of the world. I must admit, that's a picture of me at one of the races that I did, one of the hard balls races. And I felt amazing. Um, Chloe and Eric did a lot in the pram as well. I sort of took the opportunity to support the dog at the same time, although he probably collapsed at about 40 miles each time. Bless him, he's not the greatest specimen. Um, but the, the picture at the top with Chloe with the sunglasses on, I must quickly just tell you this story. She got, so right at the start, when back in 2013, when I would be running with her, she would sleep or she would um, have a little pat lunch with her and she would watch the countryside and read books and it was amazing. And then she got to an age where she wanted me to read the book. So I'd run along and she would hold the book up in the pram and I would uh, uh, <laughs> read, her, read her a story at the same time and that got quite taxing. And then I decided actually she's probably good at being at, at the top of the hill and watching me do sprint training for a bit. So we'd park up and she would have a stopwatch and then, I can't remember, she must have been about three, three and a half, and she would tie me up the hill and then make me eat strawberries at the top. And I'd walk back down the hill and we'd do it again, and she'd be shouting at me to go faster, and the reflux was unbelievable. She was making me eat strawberries and, and, and buttons at the same time. And I thought I had to do it, because she, you know, she's the one that's sitting in the pram, and I have to oblige what she wants to do. Um, sometimes she would push me. She's got some nice, funny photos of that. The other thing that was a massive part of the training is out there in the desert, the, the, I think at one point it was 55 degrees, it was, and I just thought, how on earth am I going to manage to get my body used to that heat? Um, and I think that's one of the major things of the MDS that actually make people um, not finish because they can't, you know, they get there coming from the UK and they could have done all the training in the world, but if they can't run in that sort of heat, then, um, you know, that's a serious problem. So, Tony Manners, and the reason why I put Manners heat not for me is he's obviously Manners for me. And, um, but anyway, basically, Tony and Jane very kindly donated me their sunroom. And you can see on this, the photo at the bottom there, there's a running machine in the background. They would crank this fire up. Jane would text me before school and say, the fire's on. And she would send a picture of, it's 40 degrees, another hour you'll be at 50, come on down. And I would go down and I literally would have, probably in that picture, about four layers on and maybe two pairs of running tights um, and all my gear, headband. And I would run on this running machine or walk with it on an elevation for a couple of hours in the heat. Um, and I mean, it just, yeah, I think Jane saw me come out a few times. It does crazy things to your body. The picture with the coat, so you can't really see it there, but my hands were so swollen after one of those episodes. Um, but I can say now, it definitely got me through, um, it definitely got me through knowing, I think when, it, you know, it's hard not to panic when you're in that sort of heat. And when I was in the desert, even though I was slightly panicking, I knew 
psychologically it must have been that I'd done some of those trainings, so it's like, it's okay, you, you, you know, you've ran in the teeth before, it's fine, and um, body gets used to it, definitely. Um, so, before, uh, obviously leading up to the race, there's so much kit that you need, so much things that you need to, to buy, um, kit that I'd never even heard of before. You have to take um, a venom pump in case you've got bitten by a scorpion, this is it here. So this is a bit of compulsory kit, and if you didn't have that, you'd get disqualified. Um, so that was the venom kit there that I had to, um, you had to carry that in the signal in the mirror as well. Um, and I just brought a few things, because actually, I'm never going to use these again, so I'll show you them. But you also had to wear gaiters on your, on your shoes, and these are the gaiters that I use. You've got Velcro around the bottom of your shoes. Um, you have to send them away to get that done, another 80 quid down the drain. But the, the Velcro goes around, and then the, the gaiters stick onto the shoes and stop the sand from going into it. Um, but that was, that was the list of things. There was other things, obviously, that you had in your rucksack. And your rucksack had to be over 6.5 kilograms, um, but you wanted it as close. I think at the start of the MGS, mine was at 8 kilograms. Um, and I took a sleeping bag and a down jacket and a woolly hat to wear. Um, but the things I've got at the side, these are the two things. That's Elizabeth Arden 8-hour cream. That's the little pot I took. I put, took, like, half a teaspoon because you become obsessed with weight. You cut, the, you cut the hand off your toothbrush to try and save weight. <laughs> So that was uh, Elizabeth Arden, and even the boys in the tent, they were like, oh my God, can I borrow some? I was like, uh, no, you can give me some food and you can have a tiny bit of my Elizabeth Arden cream. So it absolutely saved me, and that sun cream was absolutely amazing, because that was the other thing. I was so paranoid about coming back completely sunburned to a crisp, um, but uh, those are the two things that actually were, um, were pretty good. So that was the sort of, um, that was the compulsory kit that you had to take. And, I think my rucksack is over here as well, so it all had to fit into this, which is what was on the back for the whole six days, um, and that weighed about eight kilos to begin with, um, and it, um, it, it, it was very sore, incredibly sore, um, but as, it, as, the, as the days go on, it obviously gets lighter, um, which is great. So, food was obviously a massive important thing, your nutrition was so important out there, um, and you, could you... I think it, I look back at this, I think it's absolutely phenomenal because I eat more than that in a day now, so I can't believe I've survived on this in the desert. So you have to have no less than 2,000 calories, and I actually probably, in each bag, had just over 2,000 calories. And if you think you're running, so the long day was 57 miles in 50 degree heat, and I had just over 2,000 calories to get me through that day and that night, and, and it, you just do, you don't, you know, it's amazing how little food um, you need to, um, to actually survive. But it was all a, a, you know, a massive juggle of choosing the right food and um, choosing dense food that basically carried a lot of calories but, um, but didn't take a lot of space up. Bless Claire, this was in February when, we were when Claire was still training to do the MDS and we were testing out various food and obviously that one didn't go down very well. And Chloe joined in because clearly she is part <laughs> of the team. So that was Chloe having the food as well. But um, I'll just touch very briefly. So, I became, and Archie will laugh at this, I became pretty obsessed with vacuum packing all my food. So I took it out of every single packet to try and save weight, and I vacuum packed everything. <laughs> and Archie came back one day, and I think I'd like vacuum pack the kids' teddy just to see how small they would go. <laughs> so I got it taken off me after about two days, but I vacuum packed absolutely everything, including Percy Pigs. Um, who knew? But the one thing I did learn is you can't vacuum pack pretzels. You probably all know that already, but I <laughs> tried to do it and it doesn't work. So you can't um, vacuum pack pretzels. So basically, the rows on that bottom picture, those are the rows of the food that I had each day. And if you start at the red pack at the top, that's a sachet of coffee, and then you've got porridge, and then you've got probably macaroni cheese in that middle one there. And then everything underneath there are the snacks that I used as I was running. So it wasn't a lot of food at all. Um, and funny enough, I look at that photo, and that tuna fish didn't even make it to the bloody desert. I was so excited for the tuna fish, and I got into my day three pack, and I was like, where the hell's the tuna fish? And I just imagined the kids were probably eating it at home. I don't know what happened to it. It never made it to the desert. It made the photo, but not the desert. Um, so, yes, yeah, so the food was very important. I think taking it out of the packets and vacuum packet, obviously, um, made a massive difference to my weight. Um, and the Percy Pigs... Uh, I don't think I was hallucinating, I'm pretty sure this did happen, but there was a little boy in the middle of the desert. That should say that. <laughs> <laughs>
thousand or so. So th I did this back in May. Um, I'm probably still recovering, but I, I just got back on it. It's all fine. Um, and it, it was amazing. Like it was the most amazing experience. I loved every second of it. And I'm not just saying that. I, I just I cannot think. Oh, well, there's probably one or two in the long day that I probably wouldn't want to do again. But I, I loved every minute of it. It was fantastic. The people that I met and and just you know how how the whole thing went. So basically, it's in Morocco, um, it's smack bang in the desert, there's nothing, there's just desert, there's absolutely nothing, and you get you get flown over on a chartered flight to Wazazat in the middle of Morocco, which is probably, and that map has it come out very well, but it's smack bang in the middle, and then you've got the Atlas Mountains running down the sort of the, the bottom half of Morocco there, so to be fair, I didn't actually know where I was, but I was there somewhere, um, and you just did this big loop to, to go around. Um, those little guys in the corner, amazing. They had little t-shirts with Ultra Mummy on it and I just got such, we have so many photos, that was the day that I left. And they just, they were so hyped up, little Chloe um, and Anna and Angus, they, they just, they were absolutely brilliant. So I left, I think, I've, uh, strangely enough, my worst fear was, I think it's probably gonna sound a bit odd, but my worst fear was not gonna be able to sleep. I was so worried that I wasn't worried about actually about the running or the heat, I was worried that I wasn't gonna be able to sleep. Because I think at periods in my life when I've had anxiety, I've not been able to sleep, and that insomnia kills you. You know, when you've got it at that level and you cannot sleep night after night after night, it makes you go crazy. And I was so worried that my MDS would spin off whether I was able to sleep. And it sounds ridiculous. I don't think anyone else would have ever, well, maybe there were a couple of people that felt like that, but for me, that was a real thing. Um, and leaving these children made, made that a whole lot worse in that respect. I think the whole situation, I didn't enjoy leaving it at all. And it took me a couple of days when I got there. So you get you, you fly into um, Wazazat and then you, you get bussed out six hours into the desert. And by the time we got there, it was pitch black at night. Um, and uh, you have a day where you have your tent and you've got like a little village in the middle. The, the tent at the bottom is the village and you have three course meals. You can drink beer, you can have wine, you can do whatever you want. And then after those 24 hours, your bag gets taken away from you and you're just left with your rucksack and the stuff that you've got, um, and, and then that's you, and then the race starts. Um, the picture there, this is Hope for Children. So I ran for Hope for Children, Claire and I raised 17,000 pounds, which is a huge amount of money. Um, and the guy in the middle is Patrick, the guy that organizes the whole event, and he has organized it for 33 years, and he stands at the airport and welcomes every single competitor that comes through the door. Um, it's absolutely phenomenal. So that was us with Patrick, that's a really special photo. And then the, the two photos in the middle are this funny little thing. I mean, this just sums me up in regards to maps I'm trying to navigate. This is, this is the book. This is, this, these are the maps that we had to get through the desert. Thank God it wasn't at the end. I was mid-pack, so I had someone to follow. But, I mean, those maps, literally, to me, are just nice drawings, really. And <laughs> a description on the side. And actually, mine is pristine. I kept it really quite nice, because I never actually got it out. So I thought, what's the point? I'm not actually going to have to follow someone. So that, that worked out well in my favour. Um, and then just quickly, well I suppose this is really important in regards to my whole experience. You don't know who your tent mates are, you get on that plane, you're told by the time you get off the bus in the desert six hour, after that six hour drive, that's, they're, they're your tent mates. You, 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 you pick them on the flight and you pick them on the, on the, um, on the bus and you form your tent and when you get out you tell the, the official people who's in your tent. And Emma, the other girl in the tent, I had actually met her on the run in Kielda a couple of months before. So I managed to, I think I messaged her literally in the airport to see if she was there. So we got together. And then we met these guys. So we've got George, myself, Tim, Alex, and Tom, and Emma. And these guys were friends of the, the Hope for Children people I was running with, but they, they, weren't, they weren't running for the same charity. But they, they formed our tent, um, the six of us. And oh, it was cracking. They were absolutely brilliant. Um, and uh, we slept in the same order each night, it was quite funny, where the girls were at one end and then there was a little bit of a gap and then the boys were at the other end. Um, and the boys seemed to have taken an enormous amount of stuff. I think I had the lightest rucksack when we got them weighed right at the start. Um, so we benefited from that because they had so much food and basically <laughs> I pretty much ate all their food, which was great. Um, they definitely overdid that. And the one thing I put on as a prompt for the memory, so if anyone were to say what was the worst part of the whole thing, I think there's no doubt that it was the sandstorm at night on the second night. I have never experienced anything like it. So the tents themselves, in the top picture, you can see they're open either end.
end and they've got these funny little sort of holes that hold them up and you've got a tiny little mat on the floor and then if you're carrying a travel mat if you, you know if, you, if that's part of your kit um, mine actually popped on the first night which I was so disappointed I had to stick in the box for the rest of the time but um, basically what happened at about 12 o'clock I woke up and I realised there was a noise and it was my um, stove uh, sort of um, being hurtled across the, the, the ground into the next tent by the time I got up to get it the sandstorm had hit and it literally was a case of getting back in your sleeper bag and pulling it over your head and then the um, tent collapsed on top of us and I could just feel sand building up behind my head. It was it was horrific. And I remember George just kept saying, there's only two girls, if you cry, that's it. I'm not sleeping in this tent tomorrow night because you're girls and we could have chosen boys and if the girls cry, then you're out of this tent. You're not, and literally I was like, I'm not crying. I'm just like, I'm going to die. So we're not going to die. It's all fine. So you have this conversation for about half an hour. And then actually, ironically, and I remember this because of the whole anxiety about the insomnia, I actually slept. So if I can sleep through a, a desert storm, I don't know how long I slept for, but when I woke up, it was over, and the tent was still on top of us, but um, we must have slept for an hour or two. Um, but we learned very quickly to make sure all our stuff was either underneath us when we were sleeping or, or certainly um, hatched down. And, and we worked out through the week, actually, that you could um, pull the sides of the tent down quite easily just by manipulating the poles, but it took us a couple of days to work it out. Um, so that is basically what I did. Um, day one was 16 miles, the worst day, without hands down the worst day, I hated it. Um, just in regards to churning up the miles, and actually I probably thought I was better than I was, everyone was overtaking me, I was like, oh my god, I haven't done enough training, and oh, it was just, it was awful. Um, and it was hot, and uh, you were just acclimatising. So actually by the time you got to day three, the 19 miles, it, you, you were sort of in your stride, and you knew what to expect. Um, I'd hummed and hard about taking poles. I don't run with poles here, I never have, but I did take poles to the desert, and thank God I did, because it absolutely saved me. You know, you, you don't run the whole way by any manner of means, and when you're going uphill and downhill, and if you're, you know, six miles towards the end and you're on your knees, you need those poles to keep you going in the sand. You know, it's sand, 99% of it's sand, and so the poles were, were absolutely amazing. Um, I didn't get a blister, which I think is almost unheard of, and it's because I take my feet up every single night. So you take, I take every single toe and take round my feet, and I didn't get blister. And I had to keep quiet about that because everyone in the, in the tent had blisters, and it wasn't until the last day that I told them that I didn't actually have a blister because um, I thought, God, that's so unhelpful. I'm like, I'm a vet, didn't get a blister, I'm not So I didn't say anything at all, it was fine. Um, the other massive memory I have is the water because obviously you carry absolutely everything. The only thing you don't carry is your tent and your water. So your water's rationed. Um, I can't remember it being the little handbook. They tell you each day how much they're gonna give you. It's normally about eight bottles of water, maybe four or five of those as you're running, and then another two or three when you come in. Um, they wrote your number on every bottle, so if you dropped your bottle in the middle of the desert and someone picked it up, you'd get penalised. But with the water as well, you had to take these funny little salt tablets. Um, and I hadn't really trained with salt tablets. I trained with, I, I even now, if I go out for a six mile run, I'll take electrolytes, because I feel better if I do. Um, but the salt tablets were absolutely grim, but you needed to take them with every... I had two water bottles on my front, and you would take it... Every water bottle you finished, you made sure you take a, a salt tablet with it. And it was incredible, because when you started to run the 54-mile day, when you got into the night time, um, obviously you didn't need to take salt tablets anymore, and you just peed the water out, so that it was incredible how much... I didn't realise how much I was retaining my water by taking those salt tablets, because the minute you don't take them, your body just gets rid of the water. Um, so that, that was the, the way you stayed hydrated in the desert. Um, and so I guess the, the, the long day is the day that everybody fears. And, and uh, to be fair, it's a bloody long day. I mean, we start at eight in the morning and I finished, I think, at three the following uh, morning. So we were, you know, I was on my feet for quite a while. Um, and then the night, the actual night time of it is, um, yeah, I'll go into that. You, you hallucinate quite a lot, and you have to just make sure you tell yourself you're fine. Um, oh gosh, I forgot what this is. What is it?
during the night, um, hang on, sorry, I have to find myself here. Here we go. So um, during the night, obviously you then have your head torch on, you snap um, a, uh, almost like a glow stick, but it's a bit more sophisticated than that, and you put it on your backpack and you just keep going. And you basically have little light, you can see at the bottom there, there's a little light source, and there will be, I don't know, maybe 20, 20 meters or so, maybe, maybe a bit more spaced out than that. And that is basically one foot in front of the other. I think during the day on that day, I think the temperatures reached 55 degrees. And I, and I just I remember just running in um, riverbeds and constantly just coming off one and going back into the other. It just seemed to last forever. Um, but I definitely had, and I think I'll share this with you, there was a couple, I, yeah, I think the person pick was probably a bit of a hallucination as well, but the, I, during the night I had two moments where I thought, when I, when reflecting back, it wasn't at the time, I thought it was perfectly sane to be thinking this, but one of them was, we got to a checkpoint, I think it was the last checkpoint, and they had um, a smack bang in the middle of the desert, lit a massive bonfire, and this wasn't a hallucination, this actually happened, and there was um, deck chairs, and you got to sit in a deck chair and just, I think they gave you a cup of tea actually as well, I mean, we knew that was coming, we got told that on the start line, because I think it's something just to keep you going, just to keep you going through that long stage. And I sat back and at this deck chair and I turned to the beside and I saw this guy and he took like a platter of palm ham out and he sat back and he started eating it and I was like, no, you couldn't have carried the palm ham for all that, like I have hardly any food left and you've got a platter of palm ham. <laughs> and then I, I could feel myself getting really angry because I'm a girl for goodness sake, just give me a piece of bloody palm ham. And I was just sitting there shoving the palm ham and then he finished and got the packet and folded it up and put it back in his rucksack and off he went. And that, I remember that I, I told my friends in the tent this, I'm just not sure that happened. So I'm just not sure people would carry a slab of palmer ham, but it seemed very real at the time. And then the other two <laughs> things that happened, when I was running, you, um, I could see the finish and it just never came. I, could, I just kept seeing it and then you would duck under and over and it would be there and it just never came. And I just thought, well, it's okay because the hedges are keeping me going. I know where I'm going because I've got the hedges either side um, and the hedges will keep me going. And then I, the next day I thought, shit, there's absolutely no hedges in the desert. There's not a hedge anywhere. I've seen a hedge for the last four days. And then the other thing is I thought I'd left my rucksack at the last checkpoint and I went mental. And I was asking everybody, and they just kept saying, it's on your back. Just <laughs> but I can't feel it. It's not, it's not there. It's been really sore for the whole time. And now I can't feel it. It's not there. It's not on my back. It's on your back. Just keep running. Just keep going. Um, and I think it's, it's when you're going through that, actually, it's more scary to talk about it, that your brain is doing that to you, because you're so tired. I mean, I've been on my feet since 8 o'clock, and when I'm talking about 2 o'clock the following morning, um, just relentless uh, pace in, in the desert, and I think your brain just um, obviously plays tricks on you, but um, the calm hand might be a true story, I'm not sure. Um, and then this was just me over the finish line. I think that's me there. Never straightforward in regards to things that crop up now and again. Um, the first thing was obviously you had to take toilet roll, and it's bloody hard to judge how much toilet roll you're going to need in the desert. Now, I'm not going to go into too much detail, but I'm not one to, you know, I, I, I'm pretty, in a situation like this, my body decides that actually we'll just hang on to it, it's absolutely fine. So I thought just little, maybe half a roll all rolled up in there would be absolutely fine. No, I ran out of toilet roll probably in about day three. And George, who was next to me in the tent, um, lent me some of his wipes that he had, but he would cut them into a little... So he wouldn't give me a whole wipe, he would just give me a quarter of a wipe. And there you go. That's not, not being funny, George, but I'm female, I need more than a quarter of a wipe. But anyway, that went on for maybe half a day, and I decided this is not good. Um, so I decided, in my wisdom, that um, when you go to Doc Trotters, every night there was a little a tent called Doc Trotters that people would go to if they got blisters. And um, I knew that they would be using a uh, blue roll to put the feet on, like to disinfect them and stuff. And I think and I didn't. I, I think I probably did get caught, but I think they were so astounded what was happening, they just let me away with it. And I remember I just got my hand underneath the tent and up onto the table, and just like <laughs> whacked a bit, and then ran back to the tent. And I thought, oh, my God, I've done it. So I then ripped it up into little bits, and they gave George one bit. So, <laughs> so that was the one thing the toilet. I cheated the system on that. And the whole tent cheated the system on the bin bag because it 
bloody cold at night at about so you're hot till about 11 o'clock so you, you you batten down at about eight o'clock at night there's not much else to do other than eat and get your sleeping bag good sleep and um so by about 12 o'clock you get into your sleeping bag fully so put that beanie on down jacket and then by about four o'clock it is so cold and and you know it's a balance between not carrying too much stuff but carrying enough that you're going to be comfortable during the night and some people the top runners probably don't even take sleeping bags they just sleep in what they you know you're sleeping in what you wear anyway but they they literally have nothing on them their rucksacks are so light but we worked out there was a bin bag on every single tent and we worked out that if we asked a different sherpa each time and take the bin bag off and say they'd forgotten to give us a bin bag they would give us another one so we used the bin bags as liners in our sleeping bags, which made a massive difference. Again, we were quite chuffed because we thought we'd beat the system as well, which was quite good. And I certainly beat the system with my buff boot tube. So I didn't have any, so I basically had, this is disgusting, one pair of pants, one spare pair of pants, one spare pair of socks, and a pair of long um, sort of recovery tights. And that was it, and my damn jacket. So the boot tube buff was amazing because I basically would take it off my wrist or my head and use it at night as a top and it came up quite well. I would thoroughly recommend it. I probably would, definitely wouldn't put in the boot tube um, buff now, um, but then I was skinny enough to get in the boot tube buff, so that was quite a good good tip. I would, I would pass that on. Um, the other thing that happened is George in the tent, the boys had so much stuff with them. Um, he produced a bar of soap on day four, on day, like a bar of soap. And I just like, thought, well, you carry that the whole way. And he, so he cut, again, cut a corner off, me and he gave it to me and he, if you want to wash yourself you do it in the water they give you so you pretty much don't wash yourself because you need the water but on that I think it was after the longest days I can't go on like this so I made a little shower in my water bottle I put holes in the bottom and they, they have this funny little cubicle in the middle of the desert or just slightly away from the camp and it's covered in canvas but it's not completely battened down so the wind gets it so every so often it just opens up and if you're naked the whole camp sees you but it just got to the point where you just didn't care so I'd just be sort of you know look flap open I'd be like yeah whatever so I washed I remember I washed my hair and all my body with the soap and I got back to the tent and the boys were like oh my god you're beautiful <laughs> I just remember it was so funny we made such a thing of it that just literally I could scrub out with half a thing of soap which was quite funny um, the blind man, and this definitely happened because it was during the day and someone else witnessed it as well. This just proves that these guys, that these people that organise the MDS will do anything to get you to finish. Um, you know, you'd literally have to have lost a leg for them to pull you out of it. And there is a lot, of, there's a high dropout. I mean, I think we were quite lucky in our year. I don't think there was that many, but I think maybe just over half finish. Um, so you have various people drop out each day or, or don't make the cutoff times. But this guy had come into one of the checkpoints and I was sitting down just sort of um, relaxing or getting some food in. And um, all I heard was this scream and he'd obviously taken some ibuprofen and not been hydrated enough and he'd gone temporarily blind. So he sort of he'd been staggering into the, into the checkpoint. And I remember one of the officials going across like, what is the matter with you? Why are you blind? He's like, oh, I don't know. I think I've just taken something that I shouldn't have and I can't see. I'm going to have to stop. And she, I kid you not, she said, okay, well, you could stop and you could not complete the hardest marathon on earth, the marathon de Sades, or you could find something to hold on to. <laughs> 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 okay, nothing better. <laughs> oh my God, I better keep running because these guys are not going to let me stop. So this poor guy, obviously, just grabbed onto the tunnel and off he went. Just the way she said it. And it's not the toughest race. She argued with her and said, actually, it's not the toughest race on earth. <laughs> <laughs> Email out, I think it's like, was it 500 dollars? I got something like that. 
And I just, do you know, I haven't read them for a, for a, um, for a while, and I just thought I might read one because this is me. This is me in the desert. This is how I um how I felt. So this is the strong. This is the long day one. Oh, actually, it's just cut off again. It's not like this whole thing. Sorry. Okay. So it says, yesterday it took every piece of mental strength I had, but I came in at 3 a.m. this morning with a great big smile on my face. The first 30 miles were under 50 degree heat and almost all of it sand and dunes. Then when night came, we put on flares on our backs and our head torches led the way. It was relentless, but when I looked up in the sky, it was full of stars and I could see the outline of mountains in the distance and I found geography, which will not listen. I am so incredibly lucky to be experiencing this. I have no spare bra, so I squeezed myself into my belt. I obviously told her, so I obviously thought it was hilarious at the time. I'm sorry if you don't find it that funny. All the tents have completed so far, and only one marathon left to go, to go. Today's rest day, and I have slept until now, which has been bliss, but sadly my thermo rest popped on the first night, so I can feel every bloody rot. Apparently at 4.50pm today, we get a can of Coke. I've never been so excited. <laughs> Getting all your wonderful emails, to feel I have this incredible support at home is one of the main reasons I put one foot in front of the other. So, I won't bore you with the rest. I was going to read up some of the emails people sent me, but um, I can read my later. So we then get to the finish, and the, the finish is not the finish of the marathon to serve for me. I think obviously I said to myself when I finished, I'm not doing anything else, that's it, I'm done. But I am actually doing something else. Um, I'm, I, in January, and this is why I have massive appreciate for you coming tonight and, and, um, and supporting me, and the money that we've raised will go towards this charity. Um, in January, I'm doing 108 miles and supported on the Pennine Way. It's an ultra marathon running race. Um, and again, I don't want to belittle the MGS, but this, this, this is on a different level altogether. Um, not only is it a very long way, but also in January on the Pennine Way is probably not going to be particularly pleasant. But the reason why I'm doing it is that little boy in the picture at the bottom is Charlie Todd. Um, and he's a, a close family friend, a little boy who was six and a half. He died two years ago of a brain tumour. Um, and he was six and a half years old, and he was such an amazing little boy. And Anna and Adrian have just come to a halt with their fundraising. They just don't have the energy to do any more at the minute, and I can get I get that. So I decided that actually, if I'm going to run this race, I will do it for him to make a difference. Um, but I do realise I've fleeced all my friends this year, so um, clearly, um, yeah. And then the only other thing is this: is what this is the bloody song that went through my head again. It's on my on my. Um, iTunes in the desert and, and it just went round and round but actually in some respects it was probably a very good song and I think that's probably why it just kept me going on those times when you've just feeling you can't put one foot in front of the other and things like this just silly words in the song um, yeah they get you through so that's it thank you very much that's fine um, I hope you all enjoyed that. Um, I'm sure there's a few questions, but I, this is completely unrelated to Marathon de Sable. Oh. But I just would like you to tell one more story. Oh, no. Oh, no, about the diarrhoea. No, no. No, <laughs> <laughs> nope, not that one. I was going to say about the Millie for Mayor campaign. Because oh, for, for me, yeah. that's one of the best stories I've ever heard. Do you think it's that funny? I, I think, think it's brilliant. It's that good. Felt it, but you found in the, in the, in the boot of your car. 
So it went on and oh my goodness, there was just streams of it, um, of let's, hashtag let's find Millie, hashtag Millie for Mayor, hashtag Millie's going to change the world, it was just literally, and, and just, so I paused for a minute, and, and it literally was on Morpeth Matters, and there were probably about 500 comments, and about 500 shares, and obviously they hadn't found Millie, and this went on for two weeks, so I felt like I just got onto my computer, and it was being We have to use this silly microphone if you don't mind. If anyone's got any questions, tell us about the diarrhea. <laughs> Yeah, no, 
But uh, yeah, that's the only the only thing. Yeah, and and um, Charlie Todd now. It's funny because you sort of, um, I think in, in your head, you, you, your body goes first, there's no doubt about it. Your body, well for me, my body goes first, and my legs go, and then my hips, and my ankles, and my knees. And I think um, you're then just sort of uh, coaxing yourself through it, so you, you're almost like talking to yourself internally. And um, I have this habit of, um, oh God, this is the other thing I did, yes, I forgot about this. So <laughs> this actually goes sound really weird as well, but they, everyone has their num numbers with their um, so you have your number and you have your name and where you're from on it. So this was my Marathon de Salves number. And just to get me, just I think as a sort of game, if I was feeling very tired, say number 80, um, Herman from Germany came past, I'd be like, oh, it's number 80, it's Herman from Germany. Like in my head, <laughs> <laughs> I'd like, go around like doing little, like and pretend I'm a, I'm a vet from, uh, you know, and I'd just be like, and I'd be, I don't think I was saying that out loud, but it, it kept me going. And, you know, that, that's how I know that Lucy girl And so we've got room for another hour, however long we want it. So like I said, there's booze at the back so you can help yourself. Um, next month we've got an interactive mindfulness seminar with uh, Mr. Anderson sitting at the back there. So he's going to be taking, I can't believe I'm already saying, he's taking Novembers because then that means it's almost Christmas. Um, and at Christmas we've got two guests. Uh, one is a guy called Dan who's currently kayaking from the tip of Scotland to the bottom of England through uh, canals and rivers. So he's going straight down the middle, which is a 900 mile journey. So he's going to talk to us about that, and we've got one extra special guest for Christmas. Um, so we're going to do it slightly longer. <laughs> There's no expectation, is there? Now? <laughs> it's going to be me. Um, so that's Christmas, and then January. I mean, we're booked up now till June, so everything's on the website and it's on Facebook. Um, if you sign up to the mailing list, we'll let you know what's going on. But um, I think if you'd like to join me in thanking Millie, and then you can just go and have some prosecco and wine. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening. Um, please do subscribe via iTunes so that you will get the new podcast directly to your iDevice or whatever it is you listen to your podcasts on. Next month on the third Thursday, we have Richard Anderson with an interactive mindfulness session. So I'm not entirely sure how an interactive mindfulness podcast will sound, but um, do tune in or if you're in the area, please come along. I apologise for the sound quality. I know it was a little bit up and down and you're probably having to turn the volume down again right now. Otherwise, I'll be blaring out of your speakers. So who knows, at some stage in the future, I might even have that sussed. So thanks once again and until next time, have fun. <laughs>